to Galatians. <clears throat> um, as we take the next few weeks and go through the book of Galatians, I want to remind you that we are not doing an exhaustive verse-by-verse thing. That's too much. There's too many rich blessings in the book. We just can't do that. We don't have time, and I don't have the skill or the knowledge. So we're taking big chunks, and we're looking for general themes, some themes that run entirely through the book and some themes that don't. One theme that really capsulizes the entire book or the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia is the gospel without compromise. We don't want to dilute it. We don't want to change it. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to subtract from it. We do not want to compromise. And we'll see Paul say that same thing over and over in different ways throughout this letter. I want to remind you again that this is Paul's first letter he ever wrote. Um, It's one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament uh, book. And it's also the one in which Paul uses some of his harshest language. And we see that right at the very beginning of what Andrew read. Look at me again at the start of that with verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, by the way, Cephas is Peter, in 1 John 1, uh, not in John 1, 42, we see Jesus saying, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Cephas, he's talking about Peter when he says that. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Harsh language, right, right out of the gate. This, this isn't just anybody. This isn't some run-of-the-mill Galatian. This is Peter, right? I mean, we've heard about Peter, Peter, the great apostle. Paul condemns him to his face. Why? What did Peter do that was so egregious? We can look at the Gospels and we see that he had denied Jesus. Was Peter denying Jesus again? Did Peter deny the resurrection? Was he saying, hey, stop following Jesus? Peter wasn't doing that. But Paul was so upset that he confronted Peter face to face in front of everyone. And the text tells us that Peter stood condemned. Verse 13 tells us that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You can almost, when you read that, you can almost hear the anguish in Paul's voice. Barnabas, the traveling companion of Paul, went on the missionary journeys, saw God work, helped plant churches, and you even led Barnabas, my close companion, astray. You can hear the pain in Paul's voice as he says that, as they acted hypocritically. But what was this hypocrisy? He was eating with the Gentiles. He was having a fellowship meal. Some people actually think this may have been Uh, uh, what they call a love feast back in the day, a communion table. They don't do communion the way we do. They had an entire meal. Can that be a bad thing, fellowshipping with other Christians? That, That can't be a bad thing. And Peter knew that God was saving the Gentiles the same way he saved the Jewish people. Peter was at Cornelius' house. If you remember in Acts 10, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. And Peter starts preaching the gospel in this Gentile's house. 
And as he is preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon those that are hearing it. And they receive the Holy Spirit and they start prophesying and speaking. Now get this, Peter is in Cornelius' house preaching the gospel. He didn't have an altar call. He didn't do the every eye closed, every head bowed. He was in the middle of preaching. And the Holy Spirit anointed and baptized Cornelius' family and those who'd heard. So much so they were prophesying, speaking in tongues, and miracles were happening. Peter saw this. So he knew it isn't wrong that God is saving the Gentiles. He knew that Gentiles could be Christians. So where is his hypocrisy? Verse 12 says, before certain men came from James. Now I said we're looking at big chunks. I'm not trying to avoid hard and difficult passages. We're just looking at big chunks. But this is a difficult passage and we're going to address it a little bit. What does it mean certain men came from James? I know that I want to say that means they came, but James didn't necessarily send them. But that's not what the text says. So I don't know exactly what that means. But James was the leader of the Jerusalem council. He was the brother of Jesus. And at that Jerusalem council, Peter was there, the other apostles were there, the church was gathered, the leadership of the church was gathered. We mentioned last week, read about that in Acts 15. And they had agreed, excuse me, they had agreed after hearing the report that Paul had given along with Barnabas and Titus, the miracles that God had been doing, the churches that they had been planting, the people that God had been saving, they had agreed that they should not add anything to the gospel that Paul had been preaching. That was clear. The end of 15 tells us they gave Paul a letter to share with these other churches, saying, we're not adding anything to that. So this is a problematic passage. I'll admit that to you. Certain men came from James, these Judaizers, not those dirty rats again. And when they came here, Peter drew back and stopped eating and separated himself. Was Peter being bigoted, prejudiced? Was he being a racist? Maybe, but that's not what Paul confronts him. Paul doesn't say, hey, you're judging the outside of people. God judges the hearts. Paul's not saying, look it, you can't do this. God, everyone is made in the image of God. He doesn't say that. Paul confronts him because, verse 14 says, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In an instant, Peter feared man. In an instant, Peter feared these Judaizers, feared those from the circumcision party. That's what it tells us at verse 12. And as such, Peter shrunk back. And he started to think the gospel wasn't enough. And he started to add a little bit of law. Peter wasn't concerned so much that he was caught eating with other Christians and eating with Gentiles. He was concerned that he was caught eating with uncircumcised Christians something that he and the rest of the Jerusalem council had already agreed, that's not required by the gospel. But Peter, for the fear of man, was letting these Judaizers influence him. He was starting to add a little bit to the gospel. When you add something, you change it. 
If you change it, it's something different. It's not the same gospel anymore. But what was Peter really adding? He was trying to add a little bit of the law of God. Can we all agree that the law of God is a good thing? Did God create a law that was bad? Did God create a law that was evil? You don't have to answer. The answer clearly is no. And I will give you evidence of that from Psalm 19. Listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law of God is good. The law of God is righteous. It is holy. It is perfect. But what does that mean for us? Can you keep the law of God? I know I can't keep the law of God. I know God doesn't grade on a curve either. So it's not that I came close. Verse uh, uh, 21, the very end of chapter uh, 2 says, it's pretty clear righteousness can't be gained from obeying the law. And if it can, then Jesus died for no purpose. His death was purposeless, meaningless. He died for nothing. His death was a waste. If righteousness could be gained through the law. Well, if the law can't produce righteousness, then maybe the law isn't as good as we think it is. Maybe it really is useless? No. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Excuse me again. Romans 7, starting at verse 7, reading through verse 14. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means! Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Understand that. The law didn't produce the covetousness. The sin did. Continue reading. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin is the thing that deceived Paul. Sin is the thing that deceives me. And the sin killed me. Continue. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure, for we know that the law is spiritual, 
but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So the law of God is holy. It's not evil, it's not bad, it's not profane. It is holy and righteous and good. Again, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Is that a good thing? No, because the sin that was hiding in us, the law awoke that. It awoke that latent evil in our hearts. While the law of God is perfect, it cannot save. While the law of God is perfect, it cannot save. What would happen if I had perfection and I held myself up next to it? I don't want to think about that. So instead I'm going to take you and I'm going to put perfection and I'm going to put you right next to it. Is that comforting? Does that make you feel good? Or does that fill you with fear? The law reveals how, we re- how far we really are from God. The law of God is perfect, but it cannot save. Which is why Paul states in verse 16 of chapter 2, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one is justified. Paul certainly is not teaching us that the law can produce righteousness, that the law can justify anyone before God. What the law does is reveal our fallen, sinful, wicked selves. But the law demands perfection. It's a perfect, righteous law of God. Well, if the law demands perfection and it woke the latent evil that's in me, I got in a problem. And, and if you happen to have latent evil in you, you've got a problem. Where is my perfection going to come from? Where is your perfection going to come from? If we, you don't need to turn there unless you still have your uh, finger or thumb at Romans 7. If we jump down just 10 verses in 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, the law of God is perfect. So I need a perfect Savior. The perfect Savior came and lived the perfect life and perfectly obeyed the law. The perfect Savior came, lived the perfect life, and perfectly obeyed the law. How is Christ Jesus perfect, you ask? 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 5.14, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Without spot, without blemish, without sin, that is how Jesus is perfect. So, okay, I've got a perfect law, and now I've got a perfect Jesus. I'm still not perfect. I still have a problem. How does this help me? How does this help you? Look at the very end of chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 19, reading through the end. Through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me is what Paul says. How can Paul say that he has been crucified, yet Paul still lives? Paul wasn't crucified. Christ was crucified. Paul is saying that he was in Christ at that crucifixion because of his faith. And if your faith and your trust and your hope are in Christ, then you also were in Christ on that cross. You were crucified with Christ. That's helpful. The law demands perfection, and the perfect Savior came and lived the perfect life and perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law that you and I could not. He died in your place on that cross. His crucifixion was supposed to be my crucifixion. His crucifixion was supposed to be your crucifixion. His death was supposed to be my death. His death was supposed to be your death. But if you've been crucified with Christ, then you live with Christ. Or better put, Christ lives in and through you. Verse 20 of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. I told you this is Paul's first letter and the letter with the harshest language. We see it once again. The beginning of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed crucified. Again, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's, he's coming down hard on them. These are the first churches he planted. He, he, he thought they should have it together. Someone is coming along and bewitching them. And I don't mean putting a spell on them. He's using that allegorically. He's, you're being led astray. What's going on? It, 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 basically, 
3, 1 through 6 says, says this. Galatians. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just, like, like they do in the detective shows. When the detective is, if you're old enough, you remember Columbo. Columbo's done, he's walking out. I'm the only one old enough to remember Columbo? He's walking out. Wait, one, one more thing. Just one more thing. So one more thing, Galatians. How, how were you saved? Was it by works of the law or was it by the Spirit? Uh, uh, wait, one, one more thing, Galatians. When you received the Holy Spirit, was that through works of the law or was it through faith? Oh, it was through faith. Yeah, I thought it was. So then why are you changing things? Why are you all of a sudden now acting as if it's through works of the law? You're not making any sense. Has the Spirit of God stopped working in your lives? If you turn from the truth of the gospel and add the works of the law, you're proving you don't belong to Christ. Let me say that again. If you turn from the truth of the gospel and start adding the works of the law, you are proving you don't belong to Christ. You're nullifying the grace of God. You're saying it's void. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, Are you so foolish? Again, such kind, loving words from an apostle. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What about you? What about you, Grace Hill? Are you living by the flesh? Or are you being perfected by the Spirit? When the Spirit of God works, is that through faith? Or is it through the works of the law? When God brings the miraculous into the lives of his people, is it through the works of the law? Is it through the good things that you've been doing? Or is it through faith? These are rhetorical questions Paul is asking and I'm asking. And you know the answer. It's by faith. It's by faith alone. These Galatians followed all kinds of different gods. There were all kinds of crazy, well, they're not real gods, all kinds of idols. But now they're following the one true God. Paul had came, and he had planted churches, and he had preached the gospel, and they were now believing in Yahweh, the one true real God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the God of Jesus. They even believed that Jesus was God. They believed and trusted that Jesus was murdered, that Jesus was buried, that he rose again, and they had placed their faith and their trust in Jesus. And they'd followed false gods, but now they're following the real God. And they're starting to think, well, Moses followed the real God, and Moses had all these rules and laws. And it started with Abraham. Maybe we can earn some extra credit. Maybe we can get a few extra points and stars on the chart if we start following all of those rules. Paul, we just want to be like Abraham. We just, Abraham was God's friend. We just want to be like Abraham. Paul says, okay, I, I get that. But you don't know much about Abraham. You say you want to be like Abraham? How was Abraham saved? How was Abraham made righteous before God? Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. You want to be like Abraham? Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Be a man of faith. Be a woman of faith. Place your faith in the perfect Christ. Do you want to receive the blessings of God? Do you want to receive the blessings that God promised to Abraham? Verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look at verse 8. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. Paul almost personifies the scriptures. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, preached. He's saying the scriptures were preaching. And Paul's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not talking about Revelation. He's talking, not talking about Hebrews. He's talking about what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh, the Torah. That's what he's talking about. You want to be like Abraham? Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham because Abraham was a man of faith. So be a man or a woman of faith, not a man or a woman by the works of the law. Chapter 3, verse 3, are you being perfected by the flesh or are you being perfected by the Spirit of God? Christ is perfecting his own. God is working and perfecting his own people. The Father is at work perfecting a people for himself. The Father is transforming his people into the image of his Son. You can try and obey the perfect law, but the perfect law will not save. You will fail, and you will be condemned. You can place your trust, your faith, your hope in the perfect Christ, who perfectly lived and perfectly obeyed the law. Are you so foolish, Grace Hill, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is no. You can't be perfected by the flesh. It is the Spirit of the living God that is at work in you. Hebrews 10.14 For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering. What was that offering? Chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I will not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God gave his one and only Son as an offering for your sin, for my sin. Don't nullify that. Don't add to that. The Christ of the Christ who died, died with a purpose to perfect his people. 
when you add your own righteousness to that, you nullify that. You make his death purposeless. Don't do that. Let the perfect Savior who followed the law perfectly perfect your faith. Father, we thank you for the teachings of Paul. We thank you because when we read in your word how far we are, how sinful we are, how holy your law is, we are overcome. And then we remember that we have a perfect Savior who lived perfectly and perfectly took our curse. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Father, continue to work in us. Continue to perfect us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with us.